Welcome, everybody, to what is episode 12 of the Connecting Construction Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Hill. It has been a hot minute since we last saw you. I believe the last show we did was a healthcare roundtable around technology adoption within construction. And I think the show before that was one of the Bechtel brothers, um, uh, Darren Bechtel, of, of obviously the, the large construction organization going back several hundred years. Um, the reason I mention his name is because his great-grandfather, one of the founders of the Bechtel Construction Group, uh, did pass away a week or two ago. And so, you know, for for the audience that, uh, you know, listened to Darren on the show, obviously he was very close with his grandfather. And um, I just wanted to make a quick note and acknowledge, you know, his passing and the impact he had on the construction industry super pat you know it's it's actually funny because today's conversation is going to be all about sustainability in construction and reduction in carbon emissions and in reaching this sort of net zero targets that really the world has has established and set as as goals um in you know across industries um the reason i bring that up is because darren's um great grandfather or, or grandfather stephen bechtel was incredibly passionate about sustainability and everything we do in construction impacting the environment in a in a positive way so like i said just wanted to make a quick note and acknowledge his passing and the impact he had on the construction industry we we all have uh, the bechtel family and our thoughts and prayers that's obviously something very difficult and traumatic to go through but with that said, I, I do want to say we have an exciting conversation teed up for today. We have several passionate and fun guests on, on the show today. Like I said, the topic is going to be all around sustainability in construction. I have one of my uh, fellow youth colleagues, Elliot, Elliot Jones, who is actually um, tuned in from the other side of the world right now. I don't want to, I, I can't even imagine how many thousands of miles you are, hundreds of thousands of miles maybe, you are away from uh, the rest of us right now, Elliot. But uh, with that said, um, Elliot Jones, I'm going to prompt you to introduce yourself, share a little bit about yourself and uh, your passion for this topic, and then we'll invite uh, the rest of the folks to jump in. Absolutely. Thanks for the intro, Evan. And like you said, I am joining from Ireland and it is late on a Friday night. So I hope that shows my uh, commitment and my passion to this topic. What time is it there, actually? I'm sorry to cut you off. It is 5 p.m. It is 5 p.m. Okay. Okay, sorry, continue. Yep, yep. Uh, okay, so quick intro. I am a product manager with eBuilder. Um, I work mostly on our project side product, which is the general contractor solution that we have. In terms of sustainability, um, this is an area that I'm, I'm very passionate about. I'm, I would say I'm in the process of learning. I um, spoke to the guests we have today, um, and they taught me a lot on this topic, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to get them back on. Let's do a podcast, have a more uh, uh, in-depth, informal conversation with them. Um, in terms of sustainability with Trimble, I'm working on some of our sustainability initiatives. I work on some of our um, ESG, Environmental Societal, Societal and Governance Investor Strategies. Um, so outside of my day-to-day uh, -day role with eBuilder, I'm working a lot on the, the Trimble side of sustainability. Well, you know why this is a good topic to chat about right now, Elliot, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but um, the, the sort of elephant in the room is we have a new administration with new legislative priorities 
uh, pending infrastructure bill. All of this talk around environmental sustainability is very much at the forefront of, I think, political conversations right now. So it's a very active sort of topic. And like you said, it's a good time to bring it up. So uh, thanks for telling us a little bit about yourself, Elliot. Uh, Rick, I'm going to introduce you now, and I will say I'm not even going to try to pronounce your last name and, off and offend you by accident. So, Rick, how, first of all, it's a twofold question. Uh, how do you pronounce your last name? And then, and then number two, tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and, and what you're doing right now. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Uh, thanks for the intro. Uh, last name is Niederstadt, or if you were uh, completely German, it would be Niederstadt. Uh, I believe it's, uh, it means low city in the country of Germany, um, <clears throat> or street, actually. Um, a little bit about me. Uh, so I've been in the construction, construction management industry for well, going on something like about 25 years now. Um, <clears throat> primarily, most of that time has been with the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District, and we'll be talking probably a fair amount about uh, that particular entity and the projects that we've done and, and are doing uh, relative to sustainability. Um, you know, we do a lot of stuff at the MMSD relative to uh, green infrastructure, wastewater treatment, flood management, conveyance of wastewater. And it, it really is quite interesting to see, um, you know, where we are able to really look at sustainability in all of our projects. Um, and I, I think as I was thinking about, you know, this podcast and, and sustainability, I really try to take a step back because um, some of the things we do, we don't, I don't even think we think of as sustainability anymore because it's so ingrained in what we do. Um, you know, just like, you know, we treat wastewater. Well, that's recycling wastewater. That's a sustainable endeavor, right? You know, that's at the very core of what we do. But, um, you know, I don't even think of that anymore as sustainable because, it, you know, I know it is, but it's so ingrained in what we do. So I'm really curious to see how this, uh, how this conversation plays out. And, um, you know, I'll look forward to talking with you guys the rest of the rest of the hour. Thanks for that, Rick. Brianne, why don't you share a little bit about yourself and, and what you're doing? You're not going to try to pronounce my last name? Okay, actually, actually, I will since you prompted me. Is it, is it Plier or is it Plier? It's Plier, but I answered all of the above because everyone always calls us Plier. <laughs> well, there's a reason I didn't take a guess until you prompted me. So I have experience with mispronunciating names. Um, but Brianne, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks. Um, so I'm I'm Bree Plier. I'm the manager of sustainability for the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewerage District. So I work with Rick and a bunch of others. Um, just kind of on what Rick said, sustainability is really something that we just do every day. We don't really necessarily think about it anymore. I think a lot of that is obviously inherent in what we do um, but a little over 20 years ago, we got a new executive director. And so he's really been on board with integrating sustainability sort of in everything we do, um, you know, going through and having us create a sustainability policy so that that really sort of um, drives all of our capital and operations um, sort of expenditures and projects that we do. And um, one of the things that the group that I uh, work with does is we specifically work in green stormwater infrastructure, um, but we do also support other district staff um, in looking at ways that they can make their projects more sustainable um, in terms of environment, um, 
and, and social needs. Um, but we're also looking as well on the economic side of things for our area. We really push a lot of initiatives to increase the, um, I guess, incorporation of small women and minority owned businesses into our construction projects. Typically we, you know, have around 20%, but we're starting to kick that percentage up in a lot of projects. So um, by us, sustainability really is that, you know, three-legged stool can't have, you know, it's not stable unless you have all of them together. So I love working with the folks um, internally by us. I'm not an engineer by trade. <laughs> um, so, you know, I really rely on like folks like Rick and them to help sort of like with sustainability on the engineering side of things. Um, so my group really kind of brings in sort of the environmental and the social part of that um, to the engineering groups that we have. Cool. Well, welcome to the show, Bree. And you pr you prefer to go by Bree, is that right? Yeah. Yep. Bree is good. Uh, that makes my life a little bit easier. So obviously, I think by now everybody is sick of hearing me talk, especially if you're a lawyer, loyal listener to the show. So I'm going to hand it off to my colleague, Elliot, to sort of uh, lead this discussion. We've got a lot I think we want to dive into. We're going to plan to go for about 30, 30, 40, 45 minutes. And uh, I may jump in and, and attack some of your ideas. But, but um, with that said, Elliot, why don't you take over? Absolutely. Thanks, Evan. Alrighty. Um, so I want to kind of start, so when we had talked in the past, um, you told me about some you know, very lofty commitments your organization has made in terms of sustainability. I'd love to kind of probe that a bit more and understand what those targets and goals are. Um, but I also think you know, you're connecting these high-level goals with boots on the ground initiative as well. And that was so exciting for, um, for me in terms of what you're doing. So I'd love to kind of, if you guys could just give an overview of what, what, those, um, what your goals are and how you're achieving them. Um, and then lastly, just kind of tell me what sustainability means to you and what sustainability means to your organization. So I think that was about four questions there. Sorry. Yeah, I may ask you to, uh, you know, prompt me, re-prompt me with some of the questions if I forget to answer them. So MMSD, yeah, we've got some pretty lofty goals. I am not 100% sure we will be able to reach them by the time that 2035 rolls around. Um, I'll still be there, so I'm going to try as hard as I can while I'm working there to achieve them. Um, but one of the main things that we have that came out within the last um, 10 years is our, our 2035 vision. And that vision really drives several of the areas of interest at MMSD, um, including, you know, the wastewater treatment side of things, our flood management, and then just sort of some of those general sustainability um, commitments like carbon reduction, um, you know, energy production, things like that. So with our 2035 vision, um, there's several different parts to it. One of them is integrated watershed management. That probably means nothing <laughs> to anybody outside of our industry. But really what that is, is just acknowledging that what happens in the upper reaches of a watershed affects everything all the way down to the mouth. So we need to do more uh, coordination with folks throughout a wa the watershed scale, um, work with them and try some non-traditional things in order to keep our system operating at an optimal level, um, but also adding to projects in a way that benefit the environment and the community at the same time. 
So with the 2035 Visions um, integrated watershed management, part of that is capturing that first half inch of stormwater that falls on impervious, so hard surfaces within our service area. We serve 28 different municipalities within the greater Milwaukee area. So there's quite a large area there. Um, when we did some more digging onto that particular piece of the vision, that comes out to about 740 million gallons every single time it rains. We want to be able to capture that much water within green infrastructure. Um, so that in itself is a pretty lofty goal. Just to give some perspective, we've been building green infrastructure for about 20 years. We're currently sitting at about 37 million gallons of capture capacity every time it rains. So, you know, within the next 14 or, or you know, so years, we have to add on about 700 more million gallons um, to that, which is somewhat of an insane feat. Um, but we are trying to do that. Um, and then additionally, in the 2035 vision, there's also some energy goals. We're looking to get to 100% renewable energy by 2035. And that gets further broken down that we are going to work within our, our treatment processes to produce 80% of that energy internally. So, you know, being a wastewater treatment plant, we can take in a bunch of waste and we can make biogas and things like that. So one of the goals is to look at whether we can source 80% of that internally by us, but we want to get to 100% of renewable sources. That's also a pretty lofty goal um, in itself. And then we're also looking to get carbon neutral. So adding on to projects wherever we can, things that will help us be more carbon neutral or signing on for um, projects that could be things like energy uh wrecks, things like that to help us get to being carbon neutral. We're definitely looking into those um, as well. But all of this stuff takes time, money, and people. Um, our staff doesn't grow exponentially with these sort of goals that we have. So we have to become um, more efficient internally in how we process these goals and add those onto our, our projects. Um, so just high overview, that's the 2035 vision sort of in a nutshell. Um, Rick, did I miss anything? I don't think you missed anything. I think, you know, Elliot, one of the things I'd add to that is I think one of the reasons we're able to have such lofty goals is, is because we're not starting from a place that's, you know, not sustainable. Uh, you know, Bree mentioned that, you know, part of our 2035 vision is to, um, you know, have 100% of our energy needs um, you know, satisfied with renewable energy sources. Well, we already have a fairly significant amount of that. I think we're north of, of 30% of that right now. And our treatment plants are quite large, right? Both of them um, can treat over 300 million gallons a day of wastewater. Um, so, you know, we, we already have some, you know, very sustainable initiatives. Um, like we, we own and operate a landfill gas pipeline that transmits landfill gas uh, from the landfill at the uh, corner of Milwaukee County, all the way to our Jones Island uh, water reclamation facility, where we convert that landfill gas into energy uh, via turbines. Um, you know, that's a pretty sustainable project, one that we completed a handful of years ago. One project we're working on right now is um, uh, relative to one of our other very sustainable endeavors, which is Malorganite, and I'll get to that maybe in a minute. Um, that's perhaps our oldest sustainable endeavor, uh, but um, we have rotary kiln dryers that make a um, 
beneficial product from our wastewater treatment process, fertilizer sold all over the country. Um, and we're converting some of those dryers to be able to utilize landfill gas as the energy to dry the biosolids. Um, so that's another really sustainable project that's um, partly complete and, and, and still underway. Um, at our South Shore wastewater treatment plant, um, you know, we, we digest sludge uh, and that digestion process creates methane gas, which again, we, you know, we burn to create energy to use at the treatment plant. So, um, you know, back to the question at hand, right? I think one of the reasons we are able to have such lofty goals as part of our 2035 vision is because we've been working on this, you know, for a while and, and we're, we're starting at an already good place. You know, and back to Malorganite, um, I think that is perhaps our oldest sustainable endeavor. Um, uh, Malorganite, if you've never heard of it, um, it's a um, it's a pretty popular uh, fertilizer product used uh, golf courses and yards all over the country. Uh, and we started making it in 1926. Um, it, it basically was, uh, I think it was one of the, probably one of the first major recycling efforts in the country. And, um, <clears throat> you know, we've been making it ever since and, you know, we're, we're getting pretty good at it. Um, I think actually at this point, uh, demand far outpaces supply. We wish we could make more, but we can't because we're kind of uh, limited by what comes into our treatment plants. But anyway, so lots of lots of sustainability uh, where we're where we're at. Yeah, fascinating. And I think so. Looking at our industry, the the construction industry, the wider built environment. If we judge ourselves based on the, the UN goals, the um, the goals that they put forth, that we need to keep. Uh, temperature uh, rise below 1.5 degrees. Um, if we translate that into our industry, it is said that we need to cut emissions by 50% by 2030, and then by 2050 to achieve net zero. So based on what you outlined there, it seems like you're, you're almost ahead of that curve, which in our industry, I think is, is very unique. Um, so what I'd love to understand is, if you were to speak to someone who is, is new in this journey, if they're just educating themselves like me on sustainability, what advice would you give to a, uh, an organization either in, in, in infrastructure or the wider construction um, space? What advice would you give them as to how they can start on this journey of sustainability? Well, that's an interesting question. And uh, I suppose I could go anywhere with that, but um, you know, clearly you have to, you have to start somewhere and you, you have to know where you want to go. Um, and I think we are very fortunate here to have a, a very uh, clearly laid out vision. Um, you know, Bree talked about the, our 2035 vision, which is really a, a, a guiding, it's a guidepost for us. You know, we know where we want to get to um, and, and we have a lot of work to get there. But if you don't know where you want to go, um, you're going to have a heck of a time getting there. Uh, you know, so I think step number one in, in anybody's journey uh, for sustainability is, you know, understand, you know, where you want to get to, right? It doesn't have to be uh, necessarily the, the loftiest sustainability goal um, in the world, but, you know, likely it's going to need to be somewhere that you aren't now, right? And that's going to take steps to get there. And those steps aren't always easy. Uh, they're not always cheap. Uh, they, you know, they take, they take time, they take effort, you know, they take, they take money, but um, at, at the end of the day, those are goals that you're putting out there that you want to achieve for a reason. Um, and, and obviously you can't, you can't achieve a goal if you never set them. And if, if you don't have a vision to get there. I, I would just add to that. Don't be afraid to take a risk. <laughs> I think putting the 2035 vision out there for people to see and then have us continually talk about it 
was risky. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like Rick said, that's sort of our guidepost that that pushes everything that we do. You can't start, you know, if you don't have a baseline and understand like what you're already doing and then figuring out how can you make those sort of initial minor tweaks, pick off that low hanging fruit first and then move into the harder things. If you can get several successes with some of that low hanging fruit, you're going to bring more people say like in your organization's leadership or in the industry on board to say, ah, this works. We can do this. This is okay. Baby steps. Um, and then they'll be more on board with the bigger changes, like trying to raise more capital funding or more money or things like that into the equation. Um, I feel like that's what we've seen, especially over the last like 10, 15 years at MMSD was that we would start these little pilot sort of projects and programs. And as those projects became accepted, known, and their successes were then documented and sort of shared widely, we brought a lot of the other leadership and other partners on board to, to help us make those changes moving forward into the future. Excellent. What's um, what's an example of low-hanging fruit or small steps that you guys have undertaken? Boy, uh, good question. I mean, you know, so you know, fr from my perspective, um, you know, as mentioned earlier, we have a couple of fairly large, at least what we consider to be fairly large, wastewater reclamation facilities, right? Um, within one of them is our, our Melorganite manufacturing facility, right? So within within one of our treatment plants is a, an industrial manufacturing complex, really. Um, but we have a lot of equipment. Uh, that equipment uses a ton of energy. Um, you know, so, you know, equipment has a finite useful life and it needs to be replaced. A lot of the work that we do is overhauling or replacing, um, you know, equipment that's reaching the end of its useful life. And, you know, some of that can be as simple as, you know, getting new equipment that is more energy efficient and and then you know just because it's more energy efficient right you're you're reducing your energy consumption right so maybe we you know look at uh, installing variable frequency drives on on motors that didn't previously have them or you know maybe we look at um you know other other sources of of energy when we're we're putting in a particular project again i talked about our landfill gas um you know turbine facility earlier right that's that was um that was a pretty bold project um, when it when it was initially considered here at the district because um, it wasn't simple, um, you know. But at the end of the day, when we got it built, you know that you know that makes a pretty significant impact in our our sustainability goals, um, you know. So it doesn't have to be big things, but you know, individual little things. You just got to look at you know you eat an elephant one bite at a time, um, and it can be a small bite, it can be a medium bite, or it can be a large bite. But, um, you know, generally speaking, there's going to be a lot of bites to eat that elephant and, and you got to start somewhere. So even little things like, you know, when you, re re when you, excuse me, when you replace a motor, looking at, you know, ways to be more energy efficient. Yeah. And just kind of to go off of that, you know, we, we recently did an air compressor study who thinks about air compressors. I don't on a daily basis. I'm sure the people that work directly at the plants do, but if you can look at a piece of equipment like that, something very simple like that, and figure out that you can have a, a, you know, maybe there's this initial upfront investment in replacing that piece of equipment, even if it hasn't fully reached the end of its useful life, but that return on investment for energy savings um, and the amount of energy used is that much greater 
that to me is like super low hanging fruit. Of course, why would we not swap out something like that? Um, so, you know, in terms of sort of the operations and stuff at the plants, I think those are kind of like low hanging fruit pieces. For the other parts of sustainability, I kind of look at it in terms of like the social um, things. You know, you had mentioned the UN's um, social development goals um, that they're look or sustainability development goals that they're looking at, and that to me is when we do projects in different neighborhoods throughout our system. You know, we have pipes and pump stations and things like that across our area, what other community benefits can we provide easily on those projects? Like if we own large pieces of land and we only need a small piece of it, is there something else we can put on that land that will make a positive difference for the community? Does it provide them with green space? Um, same thing with design, just simple tweaks in design of how a building that we put out there looks or feels, you know, so that it meets sort of those needs of the community is huge. And then, um, you know, economically, I, I mentioned this, that we work a lot with small women and minority owned businesses. Set some very simple ground rule goals for that of getting these, you know, small businesses um, and things in the door so that they can help on these huge extensive construction projects that we have that are you know sometimes multi-million dollar projects um you know if you're going to have major contractors come in and do work there's no reason that they can't bring up some of these other small businesses through mentorship um helping them kind of learn the ropes and things like that obviously Government construction projects can be a little complicated in the paperwork and the bonding and all that sort of stuff that they need but just tweaking those goals to make sure that there is a place at the table for all those people. That's great for the economy. It's great, you know, social wise, things like that. Um, so that's kind of what I'm also thinking in terms of low hanging fruit. Excellent. You talked a little bit about um, CapEx and spending, you know, a little bit more upfront when it has clear reductions in your, in your OPEX. Um, and for something like uh, replacing a motor or air handling that you talked about, it can seem like an easy decision. Is it a harder decision when you're you're thinking about a much larger project? So if you're replacing piping and you want it to move through more sustainable material, is that a harder conversation to have, or is the value um, is the value clear that it makes that decision easier? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a harder harder uh, discussion to have. It 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 could possibly be a harder decision to make. Um, but I think one of the things we've done and, and we're working towards here is really taking a triple bottom line approach to, to our projects where, you know, we are looking at not only the financial implications of the project, but the, the social implications of the project, the environmental implications of the project. And, you know, we, we, we take that information when we are creating projects and we, and we give a project, a you know, the reason we're doing the project has a risk. We give the project a risk score, which incorporates that triple bottom line approach. So we, we're we starting to utilize that to prioritize our, our capital improvement program. And so we've really kind of baked all of those three legs of the stool that Bria mentioned earlier into our project prioritization process. So um, it's there for us when we are making decisions. Um, you know, so so it's really getting baked into our process. So it's not just about um, the social impacts or it's not just about the environmental impact or it's not just about the financial 
impact or financial implication, all of that stuff is baked into the, to the process that we have. Um, and I, I would say that makes the discussions and the decisions um, consistent, right? And people get com- comfortable with it and, you know, it just becomes part of the process. I don't have much to add on that. That was great. <laughs> yeah, great answer. And I would also add to that where we are working towards that, right? That's a, that's initiative in progress. Um, you know, and it's one where we realize where we need to be. Um, and, you know, we're not at the, we're not at the start line We're we're between start and finish, but we, we do certainly have some work to do in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, you talked about the fact that you don't even think about sustainability. It's, it's so core to what you do. Um, you know, as you know, water, wastewater, that's, that is your business model. Um, so I want to just explore that a little bit more because I think the, the key to our industry moving to being more sustainable is when the opportunity is clear, is when that tr- transition to sustainability is tied to increasing profit margins, having a more efficient, more productive industry. So I wanted to just kind of probe on that and, and if you had any examples to you know, how you can kind of connect the dots there between sustainability and between running a more efficient and more productive um, organization. Well, I think some people would tell you, uh, and maybe some people that are listening to this podcast would go, oh, you're talking to government people. They don't have to worry about profit, right? So, you know, that whole concept is foreign to them. And I would argue differently. You know, I would argue that, you know, we are trying to be responsible stewards of taxpayer dollars and we want to spend as few of those as humanly possible. Right. So regardless of the fact that um, we're not in this to make a profit, um, we are in this to be as efficient as possible with the funds that are provided to us. Right. So the, the decision making process is quite similar, I would argue, as it would be in the private sector. Um, we don't want to spend any more money than we have to. Right. So when you look at, um, you know, those initiatives um, towards sustainability, we're doing them because they have a, you know, they are a benefit to us from the financial side of the equation. Right. We're not going to do something. You know, we're not going to spend money just to spend it. Um, you know, so when we replace equipment, right, we want to reduce our energy consumption. Um, so we're going to look for the most efficient equipment, um, you know, to serve the intended purpose. Uh, and sometimes that involves us looking at entirely new technologies. Uh, sometimes that involves us, you know, reaching out and doing something pretty, pretty strange. Like I mentioned, the landfill gas, you know, powerhouse that we have. Um, you know, the reason we embarked on that path was because, you know, given natural gas pricing at the time and the, and the pricing we were going to be able to get for landfill gas, that was a positive financial decision for us to make. Um, you know, so you know, same thing would happen in the private sector, right? Here's my choices. Um, which one is going to, you know, cost me the least amount of money and get me the biggest bang for the buck, right? You know, where's the, where's the return on investment? Um, you know, so we make those decisions just as anybody else would. Um, you know, we're no different in that regard. Obviously, we, we want to be as efficient as we can. And we're making a lot of decisions on a lot of projects um, with sustainability in mind. And behind that sustainability is, you know, reducing energy consumption and being good stewards of the environment and being good stewards of taxpayer dollars. And I would just add to that. One of the things that I think about in terms of sustainability is, is obviously climate change, which 
is something that is going to greatly affect how our system functions when we see more in more frequent and intense rain events that has a huge impact on us so if there are things that we can do in our projects maybe it does cost a little bit more upfront now but will save us some of those headaches and and heartaches later on you know that's something that we have to kind of think about as an industry and as an organization of if we make these changes now are we going to be better off 20 years from now and will that help save us money you know improve the environment things like that later on so um like rick said trying to be as efficient as possible with the funding but understanding that those little incremental costs above like what's just the bare minimum can have major major benefits later uh to us so i think that's one of the things that you know really helps push that little bit of extra cost maybe for some of those sustainability projects or the extra time or effort um and i think that's worth it yeah, to, to what Bree just said, right? One of the major initiatives she's working on is finding a way to, to capture, uh, you know, the first 740 million gallons of, of rainfall that we get in our service area. Well, the reason that we're undertaking that initiative is because uh, we've evaluated things and we've looked at it and said, hey, it's going to be cheaper in the long run for us to capture and deal with that 740 million gallons where it falls rather than increase the size of our treatment plants to be able to handle 740 million gallons more a day of wastewater, right? Or to build more storage underground to store that wastewater, right? So, you know, it really is is looking big picture approach to say, ultimately, you know, what what is going to be in the best interests of the region and, you know, working towards making that happen. Awesome. Yeah, I think to kind of maybe build on that and talking big picture, the something that was really you know, interesting to me or, or you know as i said i was moving or i'm learning about sustainability one of the the um kind of a decision point for me was just the scale of the problem um here in construction where we our industry the built environment accounts for something like 40 percent of all carbon emissions comes from the built environment so i think we need to recognize that we have a huge part to play here um and then set out a roadmap for how do we actually make change here. Um, and some of the kind of big rocks that we have to undertake are doubling our retrofitting total, looking at shared use concepts with space. That to me makes me a little bit scared because you know I like to build, I'm in an industry to build things. Not building is gonna to be tough. Um, so retrofitting, um, utilizing shared um, use concepts, is that something that's on your radar? Um, are you exploring that, those type of solutions at all? You know, I think we we explore pretty much any any solution that might you know be be beneficial for our region and, and our organization. I would say our our industry and our our world here is um, not different really from the rest of the, the the built environment in that you know something that we built thirty years ago that was maybe quote unquote state of the art 30 years ago and is reaching the end of its useful life um, needs to be rebuilt, right? So the the emissions and, and the energy and, and so on and so forth that that 30 year old facility is is using every day, uh, you know, now, part, you know, part of 
construction is, is demolition, right? Um, you know, maybe there's a, there's a newer technology and a newer way to, to do that uh, business process in which, in which case, you know, we end up constructing a new facility or we replace old equipment with new equipment, um, you know, and, and there, I think there's always going to be construction, right? Because we're always um, advancing technology and we're always finding new and better ways to do things. And that can very oftentimes lead to replacing something that was previously existing that, again, used to be great and state-of-the-art, but is no longer. And that's just a, that's just a step towards sustainability, right? You're doing things better, cheaper, more efficiently, and more effectively. And I would just add to that, like going off of like the shared spaces kind of, you know, shared use sort of thing. We've definitely been trying to, to do that with a lot of our projects. Um, we have, we just started building these really large flood basins um, on the Northwest side of the city of Milwaukee. And one of the basins has dual function. They didn't want it. The neighborhood didn't want to see it just be this giant hole in the ground that collects water only during like certain heavy rain times. So what they did was they went a step further in the design and instead of just putting turf grass around the outside, they, you know, did plants and things like that. The neighbors want to see, but then they also put in the bottom of the basin an area where people can actually play and recreate. They put in steps down into it. Obviously you don't want to be down there during a flood event, but for the rest of the time when it's not being used for that purpose, it is useful for for something else, you know. So I think that's great. We've also tried to do a lot more of things like that within the community. Like I had mentioned, um, you know, we have different pieces of land with pumping stations and things like that. And what other uses can be done there and can those provide a community benefit? So you know, we continue to try and like revamp some of those spaces that we have and sort of re-envision our place within the community there. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, we always look towards that and obviously efficient, you know, efficiency in using space. We're currently looking, um, doing a study right now at our Jones Island treatment plant where we're looking at how is the space being used there? Is there ways that we can change that in order to assist the operations or provide more storage space or something in that nature? What, what could we build on our site or change that's existing to make it more useful to us? So, you know, we're absolutely into looking into those sort of solutions. That's fascinating. Yeah, to that end, let me just add a little bit to that one, because um, you know, I wasn't even thinking about it, and I probably should have been. Um, we recently completed a Pulaski Park project, uh, which was a flood um, water watershed management project, um, you know, flood reduction project, where uh, we really had a lot of partners, a lot of external partners from our own organization, including Milwaukee County, City of Milwaukee, etc. Um, but we really completely overhauled the stream that ran through um, ran through a. a Milwaukee County Park uh, it used to have a concrete line channel, which would, you know, quickly convey flood flows, but um, conveyed them a little bit too quickly and caused all kinds of safety issues, right? Uh, we naturalized that channel. And as part of that project, right, the, the community received a great, a great new park, um, which includes like a new basketball court, a new futsal court, new playground for the kids, uh, you know, so on and so forth. So, um, you know, part of the triple triple bottom line approach to our projects, again, looking at, you know, the social the so social benefits of a project and, you know, and thinking about all those different stakeholders. All right. Well, we just got our five minute warning from Evan, which is good that he's keeping an eye on the clock because I could talk for hours about this. 
So I wanted to just change topics slightly. Um, so we're hearing you know, some news coming out of, about a potential infrastructure bill. Um, and I haven't researched this extensively, but some of the parts that I have and what seems to be pretty exciting for me is how they're connecting infrastructure spending to sustainability. And then in, in this case, what I think sustainability means is, is resilience, is building something that will last into the future. Um, so I just love to get your take on how you feel about that and what um, some potential impacts um, coming down the road could be. Yeah, so um, with the number of assets we have, uh, we never have any shortage of, of projects in the queue. Um, you know, so I'd be lying to you if I, if I told you we weren't already, um, you know, didn't already have our interest in that infrastructure bill and have, you know, already have a list of projects that are, are queued up uh, that could, you know, perhaps be funded by that infrastructure bill, right? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done and that goes for any, any one of us, right? Um, any, any one of us that has a capital improvement program, we have one for a reason. Um, you know, there's, there's new things that need to be constructed. There's old things that need to be reconstructed, so on and so forth. Uh, you know, and I think, again, where we started this conversation, we don't really have projects that don't have sustainability at some part of, of their core. Right. Again, it, it, it's core to what we do, you know, just from the just from the most basic concept of water reclamation. Right. That is in, in and of itself sustainable. So, um, you know, I think I think from that perspective, you know, whether it's whether it's funded from our typical funding sources or whether uh, we, we get some funding support from an infrastructure bill, there are things that we will ultimately need to undertake. Um, you know, the priorities and the timing of that may shift a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there's things we have to build and there's things we're, we're going to build and we will be sustainable uh, with all of them. Just to add off of that, you know, we we built a deep tunnel system, you know, back in the 80s and the early 90s. And we use a lot of federal funding to build that system. It does what it was intended to do. And that saved our rate payers tons of money over time, you know, and because we put that investment in early, we're not under a consent decree right now, like a lot of our peers might be in the utility world. So we're excited about additional federal funding that's coming down. Cause like Rick said, you know, we're never at a shortage of projects. Our plants, you know, are older the infrastructure in Milwaukee is, is old. So bring it on. We've had, you know, some internal discussions about lists of projects. It was not hard to put together, you know, lists of projects of things that we would love to do. And I think because we're, you know, like Rick said, we've, we've already kind of like got that bar for sustainability somewhat set. It's, it's, I think going to be, um, you know, I think a little bit easier for us in a sense to be able to say, of course, we're going to do that in our projects. Yes, we're going to tick those boxes that we can get. So I'm excited about it. I'm glad that, you know, the federal government wants to focus, you know, more effort and time and money into infrastructure. You know, if it's underground, people don't see it. They don't realize it's there. They don't, you know, you just don't think about it, but it's so important to everything. Um, so it's exciting. And I think I would also add to that with um, with the technology we're using to manage our capital improvement program, it's really quite easy for us to get that list together 
of projects and what those projects might cost, right? And when, you know, when we might be planning to do them, right? Because we have all of that system, you know, sitting out there in the cloud, we just need to extract it and, and present it. So, you know, using using a system that puts all that project information in one spot, you know, makes it really easy to, um, you know, support any request for information that might come from uh, an infrastructure bill related inquiry or, or something to that effect. Almost got a shout out for e-biller there. You were you were so close, Rick. <laughs> All right, uh, Evan, do we have time for one more question? Sure, hit it home. We do. Okay. My last question then is about extending assets lifecycle, um, and I think that's going to be core to this upcoming infrastructure bill, um, but also how we should be thinking about infrastructure as a whole. Um, so I want to just understand how your organization is making steps there for either. Um, extending existing assets or for building new? How are you thinking about extending that life cycle of the asset? Uh, I would say we're primarily thinking about that um, from the perspective of what's most cost effective, right? Uh, we have a, a whole asset management group that uh, core to what they do is really, you know, running an asset management program that helps us to evaluate, you know, when, when a piece of equipment is reaching the end of its useful life what is the most effective approach? Is it to, you know, renew the life of that asset via some sort of overhaul or rehabilitation? Or given the time that's passed and perhaps the technology changes that have uh, occurred since we originally installed it or last overhauled it, might it make more sense and be more cost effective and or be more sustainable to replace that equipment, um, right? So it really comes down to, you know, taking a, a look at that from, from the individual asset perspective, whether it be a pump, a motor, a, you know, a structure, or whatever the case may be, you know, in, in that particular case, what makes the most sense, you know, from again, that triple bottom line approach. I think asset management is one of those things that nobody really talks about, but it's kind of the backbone of what you need in order to um, keep the, you know, the investment that you've made in the equipment functioning over time so that it can actually make it to its useful life. Um, so, you know, our asset management system has really been evolving quite a bit in the last couple of years. We're working on an asset management plan. We're using a new system to keep all of our assets that's going to have different reports and things that we can pull out of it that will tell us like, you know, this particular asset was uh, maintenance on this day and here's what was done and here's some pictures or this asset is beyond, you know, is past its maintenance due point. Like those are our critical things. I think that help our uh, contract compliance group with managing the treatment plants um, and our tech services group with coming up with the projects that need to happen next in order to um, build our, our capital infrastructure uh budgets and things like that. So um, yeah, asset management is a huge deal. And giving the people the information they need to help, you know, inform their decisions is really, really important, right? So, you know, project, you know, project people aren't necessarily asset people and they're not necessarily thinking, uh, you know, like a asset management person. And that's, you know, you mentioned earlier, I almost gave a shout out to eBuilder. Um, you know, we have an integration between our e-builder environment and our asset management environment, you know, so we may, we can facilitate making those decisions easier because the information is shared between systems, right? So, you know, that just helps us to be, you know, more effective at what we're doing. Do you mind me asking, uh, this is a total curveball, but who do you, who, who's the vendor that you use for your asset management system? 
Uh, we use a, uh, I don't know the the official name of the vendor, but uh, the, the software system is called Bicycle. I believe it's out of Sweden. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's not a hugely well-known one if I'm understanding it correctly, uh, right. but yeah, that's, that's who we use. I, I see the purchase reasoning. You just wanted an excuse to travel to Sweden every other year and visit their offices. Right. I don't know that anybody's actually done that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, for any government folks that are listening, that was a joke. Uh, episode 12 of the Connecting Construction Podcast, Free and Rick, thank you so much today for joining our conversation around sustainability in construction. This is, like we said, a very active topic in today's uh you know, legislative climate and, and with this pending infrastructure bill, I'm sure there will be even more um, ongoing conversations around this topic. So thanks again, Bree and Rick for joining today's show. Uh, episode 12 of the Connecting Construction Podcast. This will be available on Spotify, Apple uh, Podcasts, and pretty much any place that you can find you, your podcast or whatever platform you may use. Um, episode 13, we've already got another guest on deck in the next month or so. So with that said, thank you everybody for tuning in and we will see you next time.